Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 12 today. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Um, so it's always exciting when you're given a passage to preach on. It's a whole chapter of the Bible. You're like, okay, let's, let's tackle this one. There's always a lot packed into there that you can pull out and do many sermons. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to try to get this done before 4 o'clock today so you guys can have a good dinner together. Um, while you guys are turning there, does the name Louis Zamperini sound familiar to any of you? Yeah, yeah, so Louis Zamperini, um, some of you may have read the book or seen the movie Unbroken, um, and that's a, it, it tells the story of, of Louis' uh, involvement in World War II. He was a U.S. Uh, bombardier soldier, so he was sent on a mission with uh, some of his team, and they were to go do a search and rescue mission. In the process of this mission, I'm just going to boil this whole thing down for you, um, his plane goes down in the Pacific Ocean. He and uh, two other guys from the plane uh, remain alive, and they're trying to survive on this raft, and they're out in the middle of the ocean for a very long time. Eventually, what happens, to fast forward a lot, uh, a Japanese ship comes by. They get all excited at first, then realize it's a Japanese ship, and um, they're uh, taken as prisoners of war, uh, just the two of them. One, one of the guys had passed away by that point. And uh, after this, you know, they've been taken and transferred around to different uh, uh, POW camps. And uh, there was a man, I got to look at his name so I remember it, uh, who was in charge of one, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, um, who was in charge of one of these camps. And just important note here, uh, Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete for track. He was fast. He, he, was, he was in shape. And so this, uh, this guy knew about his involvement with the Olympics and really really pushed him, really put a, a beating on him, challenged him, tried to break this guy. And, then, and as the story goes on, that's, that's where the title becomes un- unbroken, right? Uh, Louis is able to stand up to all this, and he's able to really kind of encourage his uh, fellow Americans who are held in the camps as he goes and uh, does not cave under all this pressure. But um, we're going to learn today, too, that the church faced a lot of pressures from the world, a lot of opposition but the church will not be broken. The gospel will not be broken. It will persevere. So look with me to Acts chapter 12. And I'm going to read through this whole, whole passage. It tells a story, as much of Acts does. And so let's you know, hear what Luke has written for us uh, today. It starts out, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported uh, that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he, sent, uh, he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. By the way, Blastus, what a name, huh? They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Wow. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your scriptures, and God, at times we're, we're shocked by what you put in them. Uh, reading of Herod, who was eaten by worms, Lord, it's, it's shocking to us. But now, as we dig into this passage, God, I ask that you would please help me to preach your word faithfully. They would go out in truth and challenge us, Lord, to go and uh, be lights in our communities, and Lord, to walk closer with you. I pray for this time now that you would be at work in each of our hearts to convict us of our areas of sin, to encourage us where we may need encouragement. God, that you might be glorified in the time that we have left together this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I would like to uh, talk about four different things this morning, so we're not going to get out four o'clock, but um, I don't know. We'll see. It might be close. But I want to talk about four things that we're reminded of by participating in kingdom-advancing ministry. And what we have to do is be careful as we approach a text like this. This is a, a narrative. And that means it, it was given to tell a story of something. So what we don't want to do is jump in and say, let's just take any principle and apply it, right? If we were to do that, perhaps we could say, you know what, if a, if a Christian person's in prison, God's going to free them. That's not what this story was given to us for. Right? We're not promised that, you know what, a, a believer who's in prison because of their faith is going to be uh, set free by an angel and, and crazy miraculous things are happening, or that if somebody steals the glory from God, that you're just automatically going to be struck down and eaten by worms, so watch out. Right? That'd be a really short sermon. We could be done right now. And some of you are like, sweet, I'm fine with that, okay? Well, newsbreaker, we're not. But 
there are important things that we can take from this passage, principles that, that are true across the board, things that we can learn from a story that we can apply to our lives and our ministries here even today. And the first one that we're going to look at is that, that persecution is a, is a real thing. Persecution is a real thing. I want to start and pause for a moment and define what persecution is, because especially here in America, we, we have maybe a bit of a flawed perspective of what persecution is. But let's, let's define persecution as uh, the moment where you are, or, or a situation where you are put in harm's way, you're threatened as a result of your faith, right? We have brothers and sisters around the world who uh, may have a very different perspective of what persecution is than we do. And I want to be clear that we sitting here and our brothers and sisters around here in America in general are not the Peters and the James of this story. We're not the ones being locked up for our faith. We're not being put to death by the sword. We're not being dragged out in the streets and mocked and spit on and beaten for what we believe in of Jesus Christ. We are the people. Notice it, Notice at the very beginning. It says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We are more accurately those believers who are sitting at Mary's home, gathered together to pray. But we shouldn't forget that persecution is a real thing. While we don't feel the burden of persecution, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who right now may be fighting for their very lives because of their faith who are choosing to say, am I going to stand for my faith when they come and knock on my door? We have brothers and sisters in Christ who um, have been taken off to prison. You've seen the videos of ISIS members cutting off the heads of Christians on the beaches. There are Christians who have been shunned from their families because they've said, I believe in Jesus Christ. And their own families no longer want anything to do with them. And here, what, let's be real for a second. What, the persecution that we may face is someone's going to think we're a little weird, a little odd. Maybe they'll cuss you out. They'll call you a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. Who knows? Like, does that really, that's not really persecution. But we, as brothers and sisters, can come around and say, we can pray for those. We can support those through prayer. And that's what we see happening here. Earnest prayer was made for Peter while he was in prison. Don't forget. Don't forget our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted on a, on a daily basis. I don't know how many of you guys are uh, familiar with a man named Pastor Andrew Brunson. Have you guys heard of him? So he's, a, he's a pastor. He was a Wheaton College graduate right around here, and he has served as a pastor for over 20 years in Turkey. Well, in October of 2016, he was arrested. He's been held in prison even to this day. He had just gone to have a, a trial, and they extended his trial into May, so we're still waiting on that. But um, he's been in prison now for nearly two years, almost two years, uh, being accused of, of various things. That it, Really what it boils down to is he's a pastor, and they're, they're afraid of him indoctrinating their culture, right? And uh, many people, my aunt is a Wheaton College grad, and so she's posting some of the updates online, and so I'll see some of those. And we have a brother who's, who's in prison now, separated from his family. His wife sits by and watches, can't talk to him, can't interact with him. And she asks for one thing, prayer. Would you pray? 
would you pray that God would effectively do something? And it's, so it was cool. She had just put out this uh, request that people would pray. After his uh, recent uh, trial visit, he was uh, moved back to a prison that he was sent to first. Where he, very overcrowded. It's a, it's a miserable place, treated very poorly there. And so she was praying that he would get moved out of that prison for his uh, May trial that's coming up. And uh, as of Friday, he has been moved. And she was like, this is a, this is a true answer to prayer. You know, so we, this is just one story, though, but we can uh, be supportive of our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution on a daily basis. But persecution also reminds us of something. Persecution reminds us that to be a part of a kingdom-advancing ministry, we are to interact with an unbelieving world. People around us, as we live out our faith for Jesus Christ, as we talk about our faith in Jesus Christ and who Jesus is, Phil talking about the opportunity to sit down and say that Jesus is what we're all about, as people see that in our lives, those who do not have that same belief, that same conviction, may not agree with you, right? And the way they live that out may be different. But it is a reminder that we're to be interacting with unbelievers. That's how the kingdom advances. Unbelievers becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And God has sent out his church to carry on that mission. He empowers you and I in the giftedness that he has given to carry out his kingdom work, to be lights in a dark world, to be salt to the earth, to go and share the good news with those who don't know it. When's the, when's the last time you had, and this is a conviction for me as well, when's the last time you had an unbeliever over for dinner? Or you went and spent an afternoon with someone who didn't share the same faith as you. You involved yourself. Maybe you went on a trip with somebody who didn't know the Lord. Went golfing with them. I don't know. I've just had this thought lately that golf, golf is a great place to do ministry. You're stuck there sitting with somebody for hours with only the opportunity to talk to them. What an opportunity. But plug into your communities. You guys are all from communities around here. Shabana, Malta, Waterman, um, Lee. I don't know where everybody's from, but there are unbelievers around you. What an opportunity to say, listen, I know these people. These people know me. Let me make an impact in their lives. Let me tell them what is so important to me, what has changed my life. Don't be afraid of what they may say. Don't be afraid of uh, the mocking words that may come your way, but embrace the opportunity to be a light for Christ. The second thing that we're reminded of is that prayer is power. And this, was, this is one thing that, as I write an outline for a sermon, I'm like, I don't even know if I want to talk about this, right? Because we talk about prayer as Christians so much. It, it constantly comes up. You know, if you ask a, a believer, what's, what's an area of your faith that you need to grow in? There's common answers. I, I need to pray more. I need to read the Bible more. And we'll talk about the power of prayer. We'll talk about the importance of reading and understanding the scriptures. And how often does it really do something? You might be fired up for like one or two days. You're like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to really tackle this. And then what happens, it, it kind of dies down. But prayer is such a powerful thing. And our prayers aren't always perfect. So we don't know what the prayers were. It says that earnest prayers were made for him, for Peter, by the church. What were the prayers? That wasn't important for Luke to tell us. We don't know. They could have been, quote-unquote, smaller prayers. Now, there's really a small prayer, but prayers that the Lord be with Peter while he's in prison, encourage him, give him rest, uh, just be with him while he's there. Let him feel your presence, God. 
Or maybe they were like bigger, miraculous prayers. God, free him from prison. I'm going to say, if that's what their prayer was, I don't know if they really believed that God would be able to do that, right? Because the response when Peter shows up at the door is like, Peter's not really here. That's just his angel. Peter's in prison. Rhoda, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. If they're praying, God, free Peter from prison, then their prayers were not perfect in the sense that they did not have faith that God would truly do it. But God is a, a powerful God. And we need to learn that Prayer is, is the heartbeat behind the ministry of a church. A ministry that God's not a part of is going to be a, a fruitless ministry. And that was something that even, uh, even this week at the, at the conference I was reminded of, right? Prayer being the fuel behind everything. God needing to be in what goes on in your church. And it, I was thinking about this too. It's like, you know what? I was never really a part of these. Um, but prayer meetings, right? Churches used to have like, meetings where people would come just to pray and now now the church has meetings where prayer is like just a standard introduction to the meeting like if we don't pray before we start this meeting anything we say is not going to be blessed by god and we're wasting our time and we better close the meeting out in prayer too right and then everything else in between but at one point, prayer was such a, a believed-in force in the church that people would gather just to pray. That's what we see here, that many were gathered at, at Mary's house to pray. To pray. They weren't there just for, for dinner and, oh, let's bring food. They weren't there to, hey, you know, let's, let's start about talking of, uh, starting up a new ministry. They weren't there to, to talk about a, something coming up in the church, some big event and planning out the details. They were there to pray. Do we as believers, and, and let this really hit home for a second, do we really believe in the power of prayer that much that we would devote a period of time just to pray, to bring our concerns to the Lord, to ask for Lord's will, the Lord's will to be carried out in our communities and our lives? Is that a true conviction for each of us? There's a, a story. I think this is a hilarious story. Um, I don't know if it's true, but it's good. Um, there's a story of a, a small town somewhere, I don't know the name of it, um, that was, historically, it was, a, it was a dry community, right? There was no alcohol uh, in town. And then one, a business owner in town decided he wanted to move a tavern in. And, you know, news of that broke, and some members of this church said, we're not okay with this, this isn't good, let's, let's gather for a prayer meeting. And they gathered for this prayer meeting, and they prayed that the Lord would intervene and take this, uh, this tavern out of town. And a couple days later, lightning struck the tavern and burned it to the ground. And the guy who built the tavern sued the church, saying, it's your fault that this happened. And so the church went, and they hired lawyers to say, it's not our fault. We had nothing to do with lightning. We had nothing to do with this. So the court goes, or the case goes to court, and the proceeding judge, before he gets into anything, says, however this turns out, one thing is true. The tavern owner believes in the power of prayer, and the Christians don't. Like, wow! How about that for a crazy story for you? I don't, like I said, I don't know if it's true or not, but if somebody made that up, that's great. Thank you to whoever did that, but um, what, a, what a conviction, right? The tavern owner believes in the power of prayer, but how, like, seriously though, how often is that true for you? You'll pray something because that's what Christians do. We pray for things. But if you were to really have to give your hope 
You're like, I, I just, I hope God might do it, but I, I don't know if God could really change this person's heart. I don't know if God could really affect this situation, but I know I'm just supposed to pray about it, but where's our, where's our faith at? Our boldness in our prayers. Prayer is our power as the church. Let everything that we do be bathed in it. Third, praise belongs to God. Um, I love the Bible, and I love the Bible because it doesn't hold anything back. It just puts it out there. And um, the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that it's not some romanticized book just made for, like, toddlers. But you can be a grown man and read the Bible, and it'd be like watching an action movie. This is crazy. Herod was struck down and eaten by worms and died. That's in the Bible? Really? We did a, a series last summer with the youth group at Sugar Grove called That's in the Bible, and that's all we did is we went and found a bunch of stories that were in the Bible that you're like, wait a minute, if somebody told me that that was in the Bible, I wouldn't believe them. This would make that list, right? Did you know that in the Bible there's a story of a guy who got eaten by worms and died? No way, not in the Bible. Yeah, it's right here, right? Okay, and what was the reason for it? Luke doesn't make us try to figure that out and just guess at what God's purpose was for doing this. He says, because he did not give God the glory. There you go. He didn't give God the glory. God struck him down immediately. And the other thing I love about the Bible is that it's accurate, right? I love when extra-biblical sources document the same things that biblical sources document. You see the, the same event from a biblical perspective and a non-biblical perspective. I think that's cool. So I, I did found, so there's a man named Josephus that I'm sure many of you guys have heard, and he was a, a, a Romano-Jewish uh, scholar and historian, so he's connected to faith in, in a sense, but he's, he's not quoted in the Bible. And here, here's, I just want to read uh, a story uh, to you. So Herod's name is, was Herod Agrippa, okay? So this is what Josephus says. Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower. And there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar, for whose well being he'd been informed that a certain festival was being celebrated. At this festival, a great number were gathered together of the principal persons of dignity in his province. On the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto referenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery, but he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope uh, over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings. Just as it has once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and fell to the deepest sorrow, a severe pain arose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity, and five days later he died. There you go. That's what you got. So, when I read the biblical perspective, I kind of think of it just because I'm a guy, maybe, I don't know, like, there's Peter, or, uh, Herod, and all of a sudden, like, he just keels over, and then worms just, like, come out of him. And that's pretty gruesome, right? That's pretty, that's, that's horrendous thinking. 
But it probably wasn't that. It was probably more he got sick and five days later he died. But what a cool thing to see that an extra biblical source is documented the same historical story that's recorded in the Bible. What we read here can be trusted, right? It's a good thing to know and to believe in. But, but anyways, this happened because Herod did not give God the glory. He's claimed to be or, or credited as a God, a, an immortal man. And what happens next? Well, his mortality is put to the test. God says, oh, you think you're, you're immortal? You think you're God? You're going to let them give you this credibility? I'll show you who's immortal. I'll show you who truly is mortal, and that's you. You can die. Let me show my might. And listen, this, this isn't here, I don't think, to say as Christians, you can never take a compliment. Okay? If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you did a great job with this, and, and you, know, you can't take that compliment, and, and sometimes this happens in the church, so when people compliment you, and I, this is me, all right? I have the worst time taking compliments. If you, I, I don't know how it comes across to you. My wife knows this. If she tries to compliment me on something, I just kind of freak out. I change the topic. I do something goofy. I don't know. But we have a hard time sometimes taking compliments because we don't want to take the glory from God. So when, when somebody compliments us for using the gifts that God has given us, uh, we might say something like, oh, no, it, it wasn't me. It was all God, right, or, or something like that. But I don't think this is saying you can't take a compliment, but what's your attitude in the compliment, right? Anybody can say when complimented, it's all God. But that doesn't mean that that's what they believe in their hearts. How many times have you said, no, no, it was all the Lord, but in your heart you're thinking, finally somebody recognized me. Somebody realized what it is that I'm doing. So I got to thank you. This just made my day, right? And your words say praise to God, and your heart is saying, yes, me, 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 right? What, God, what, what this is really about is where's your attitude in your heart? When somebody brings a compliment to you and says, hey, you know what? I saw you working with the little kids at this event. You know, God has really gifted you to do that. You did a great job. Is your attitude in the heart like, hey, yeah, I, I did a good job? Or is it, you know what, thank you, Lord, for, for giving me the skills and the opportunity to let my light shine for you, to, to make an impact on these kids? You know, whatever it is that you may be in. If you're organizing a, an event for the church, you know, hey, you did a great job organizing that. Well, Lord, thank you for, thank you for giving me the the administration to be able to put the details together and coordinate with people to make sure things were covered and this event could go off and people could have a good time and, and you would be seen and be glorified in that. Thank you, Lord. What a wonderful thing. Our, our skills, our powers, and our positions should never be a prescription for us to steal the glory from God, right? Our, our strengths can quickly become our very weaknesses. For example, a a person, uh, this is something I found, so I'm going to read it too. Um, I don't want to take credit for it. A person who calls himself frank and candid can very easily find himself becoming tactless and cruel. A person who prides himself on being tactful can find eventually that he's become evasive and deceitful. A person with firm convictions can become pig-headed. A person who is inclined to be temperate and judicious can sometimes turn into someone with weak convictions and banked. Loyalty can lead to fanaticism. Caution can become timidity. Freedom can become license. Confidence can become arrogance. Humility can, can become servility. All these are ways that your strength can become your weakness, right? Beware. 
lest you look at your strength and say, I am strong, right? Because by your very strength, you could also fall. Give the glory to God. Stephen Cole once said, to seek glory for ourselves is to declare war against God. And his quote, start my quote, that's dumb. Don't do that. How foolish is it to declare war on an almighty, all-powerful, sovereign, king of the universe, creator of all things, God, and you're going to say, I'm going to declare war against you. Quite frankly, I think you're going to lose. I'm going to lose. That's, that's a battle best left unfought. I'd give him the glory in that. Lastly, fourth thing, let's move on. God's purpose will never be thwarted, right? These first three points kind of culminate into this last one, that God's purpose will not be thwarted. It may seem confusing at times. It may seem highly unlikely at times, but it will not be thwarted. There are times that the evil around us may seem so huge that how could God possibly be doing any good in this? A personal story for me from a high school perspective. When I was a a sophomore in high school, I found out that my family was going to be moving and I was going to be transferring high schools. I didn't like that. I had grown up at Aurora Christian from like preschool through the end of my sophomore year, and I was like, this is home. I've got a reputation here. I've got good grades. This is where all my friends are. They're building a basketball program around me. I've got, I've got the life right here. And God said, nope, see ya, you're moving. I'm going to be honest with you. From a sophomore, junior in high school perspective, I was really angry with God. Why would you do this? I have two years left of high school. Why would you take me from Aurora Christian and put me in this small public school in the middle of nowhere? I don't know anybody. What are you doing, God? And I was upset. I remember there were times I'd sit in my room and I'd just cry and be like, free me, somebody free me. I'm oppressed. And my dad one day, yeah, I'm telling you, sophomore, junior high school perspective, I, I didn't quite get it. Um, but my dad one day, my dad's not a man of many words, um, but he came in my room one day and I was visibly upset and he sat down on the bed next to me. And uh, this is probably one of the most influential things my dad has done in my life. He sat down and he said, hey, I know this is, I know this is really hard, um, but I think this book is going to help. And he set this book down on the bed next to me. He's like, I want you to read it. And the next moment, I thought my dad was crazy because I looked at the book, and the title of the book was Who Moved My Cheese? I'm like, what? Have anybody heard that book, read the book? Yeah? Okay, cool. So for those who haven't, well, I thought my dad was crazy because the title of the book is Who Moved My Cheese? And I'm like, what is my dad getting at? But he's like, please read it. So I let it sit there. I didn't touch it for a couple days. And I was like, you know what? My dad doesn't normally ask me to read anything. So there might be some purpose to this. So I decided to read the book. It was short. Um, Here's the premise of the book. There's some mice. They live in a maze. In this maze, there's rooms. They were living in this one room where every single day, cheese was put into the room. And they could live and they could thrive because they had their cheese. Well, one day, the cheese quit coming. So these, these mice are, are left to figure out what are we supposed to do. There's three of them. One says, I'm going to go look for, for cheese. Maybe it got moved. They're like, no, you can't go. You're going to die. It's a maze. Who knows where you're going to... You can't leave. And he leaves, and he doesn't come back. A couple days later, the other mice get pretty hungry, right? Well, the second one says, maybe, maybe he found the cheese, and we should go look for him. No, he probably died. We can't leave our room. This is, this is home. The cheese will come back, right? So the second mouse leaves and goes fine. He doesn't come back. So the third one says, 
maybe they did find the cheese. Eventually goes, and sure enough, cheese was in a different room. They found it. And so my dad left a post-it note on the last page and said, listen, maybe God has moved your cheese, and you need to learn to trust him, right? And, and through that, you know, you're, what does that have to do with God's purpose, right? What, what does that have to do with any of this? That move from Aurora to Newark changed the trajectory of my life completely. I wouldn't have gone any of the places that I've been. I wouldn't have known the people that made huge impacts in my life. I wouldn't have learned the things from the Lord that I had learned, that he had taught me, and it started there. It started there with learning to say, okay, even though in my sophomore and junior mind, the world is falling apart right now and God clearly can't know what he's doing, God did. And he had a, a brilliant plan and a, he did a lot of things through it. We need to learn that God's purpose will not be thwarted. As we read the beginning of this chapter, you got James is dead, Peter's in prison, violent hands are being laid on the church. What's going on? We've been growing, all this stuff's been happening. God, what, what are you doing? Is this all for nothing? Is this, is this the end already? We just, we just got started. And now we're going to end this whole thing? I mean, what are we supposed to do about Herod? What's going on? We need to learn that even amidst the most evil, God can still be in control. He is in control. There may be seasons where, where evil things happen, right? We live in a culture right now that's, that's struggling. Does that mean that God's out of control? Is God looking down from heaven and saying, oh, no, what's going on to America? Huh? Anybody? Anybody? Gabriel? Somebody tell me what's going on with, with America. No. God's in control. But we still need to be the church, right? We need to seek out the Lord. We need to trust him. And we need to continue to be faithful. Because God's plan is not going to be thwarted. No one's going to overthrow the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. He's got this, and we're on his side, right? There's a story of uh, a family who took their kids to the, some caverns, and once they get down to the bottom of the caverns, the, the guide turns off all the lights just to show how dark and how uh, quiet it can be underneath the earth's surface. And, and the little girl, she starts freaking out because it's super dark. She's scared. She starts crying. And the boy says, oh, don't worry, sis. Somebody here knows how to turn the lights back on. And from the little boy's perspective, you know what? We're the ones who knows where the light is. We're the ones who, in a, in a dark world, we're able to go and we say, here's the light. And we can share that light, right? Right here in Shavana, right in, in, in Lee, in Waterman, wherever it is. You don't have to go to Africa or Asia to share the light. You can share that light right here in your everyday life. Because there's darkness around and it needs the light. That's what God has put us here for to share, to impact our communities. Um, just as an example, as we close this out, in, in 1980, uh, you guys like the movie Miracle, the story of all that that happened? I wasn't alive in 1980, so I didn't get to see it firsthand, but I got to see the, the movie. And uh, so the U.S. hockey team goes, and they're playing the Soviets, right? And they eventually go on, win a gold medal. And uh, before they beat the Soviets, their, their coach uh, told the boys on the team, they say boys because they're all college kids, so people call us boys. Um, he says, listen, you were born to be a player. You were meant to be here at this time. This is your moment. 
And how true is that for us today, right? God has put you where you are for a reason. It's not chance. The people you get to interact with, the, the jobs you're working, your neighbors, the house you're living in, it's not fluke. God has put you there intentionally to reach those people around you, to impact their lives, to care about them, to say you matter and here's why. Because God has given you significant value that nobody else can take away. And he's shown me. He, I know that value that he's given me. I know that relationship I have with the Lord. And, and you need to know that too. And here's what he's done. He has sent his son to die on the cross. You're so important. He sent his only son to die on the cross. He sacrificed him to pay for your sins. And he rose from the dead that you could have a relationship with him. Because see, when you sin, the sin in your life has separated you from having a relationship with this perfect and loving God. But he loved you so much that he died for you. What a cool story we get to share. What an amazing light we get to shed. Let's not miss that opportunity. I decided to uh, look up online. We're in DeKalb County out here in, in Shabna, so I want to look up online and see. I wonder what the religious uh, demographic is like out here. All right, so this is all for all DeKalb, not just Shabana. But uh, did you know that between the years 2000 and 2010, so this is a little dated, but that was the last time they took the 10 years to look at in, in comparison, right? In those 10 years, the Protestant church, the Protestant faith in DeKalb County shrunk. And those who are the nuns grew huge. What are the nuns? And you guys know what the nuns are? Nuns are people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. I'm just, I'm nothing. Huge amounts. Over 56,000 people in DeKalb County, as of 2010, identified themselves as nuns. So if that trajectory continued, who knows where we're at today? I didn't find that number. I should have looked harder maybe, but what if we took it upon ourselves as Village Bible Church to say, what if we could do something in this area to change that trajectory? What if we sought out the Lord and said, God, help us. Show us what we can do to impact our communities. Show us what we can do to reach those around us, that, that perhaps those who know Christ and, and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that number would increase in the next 10 years, and the, those who are the nuns would, would decrease because they, they found Jesus because somebody introduced them to him. What if that started here? today. Well, that started with you today. I pray that that would be your conviction, because, you know, God's gospel will not quit advancing. It's going to go forth, but he's given us that responsibility to carry it. So if you don't carry it, that's on you. But what a gift that God's given us to be a part of that uh, process, his kingdom advancing here on earth. Right? As Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Will your feet be beautiful this week, this year, in the next 10 years? Will you take the good news to those who need to hear it?